and we are back for another par train. It is just Evan this episode. Unfortunately, Strat came down with the stomach flu. We didn't want those noises on the podcast. Cermak couldn't get out of a meeting. So I just finished editing this episode with CBS Sports' Dottie Pepper. And I got to tell you, it was almost more enjoyable going through it the second time as it was recording it in the first place. This might be our favorite interview, and I know we say that a lot, but you know, when you go through these interviews and you and you interview these people in golf, you always find these nuggets of like, okay, that was my favorite part. This this section was really funny. But I'm telling you, every question I asked Dottie, pretty much every answer provided you a nugget like that. So get ready for an amazing interview. She's an amazing person, as good of a player as she once was, which a lot of people probably don't realize if you're in the younger generation. She was an unbelievable player with 17 wins, two majors, an unbelievable Solheim Cup record. Um, And we just talk about everything from breaking news on Jordan Spieth, get ready for that, Um, a behind-the-scenes look at why golf broadcasting is actually pure chaos and the hardest sport to do live, she, we asked her directly about the CBS golf criticism about you know, the coverage gap and what they cover, and she answers that very honestly and directly. Uh, lessons the average golfer can emulate from lessons she's learned as a top female player to also following the best players in the world to even why Annika Sorenstam put Dottie's face on a punching bag in the European team room. Um, and what USA, Team USA can do better. I thought actually that answer was something I'd never heard before and something I think the captains should take with them moving forward. So without further ado, let's just get right to it. All right, we're back with the one and only Dottie Pepper. She's being honored by the New York Golf Hall of Fame this Friday. So this is incredibly timely. Congrats on that. And, you know, we think that more women should be featured in golf. So we're excited to have the one and only Dottie Pepper. Thanks for joining us, Dottie. How are you? Thank you. I'm great. It's uh, kind of cool to be with you guys. We always like to start our guests off with something fun and lighthearted just to ease you into it. So hopefully this doesn't put you on the spot too much. But, you know, it's one of our personal dreams to act like we are Jim or someone up in the booth and kicking it over to Dottie down on the course. So we heard and read that Tommy Roy, obviously the big uh, producer over at NBC, you're obviously now at CBS, but you've worked with Tommy right. for years. Um, we read mm-hmm. that he said that your biggest strength was your preparation on the course. You're known for those great tidbits on the course, right? So we're going to act like I'm Jim Nance for a second so I can do the lower voice and see how I do. You can tell me how I do compared to Jim. No, you can start by saying hello, friends. Yeah, exactly. So I'm going to kick it over to you. We've got five of the biggest players in the game, and we'll see what you have to say about them going into 2019. Okay? Okay. Okay. So, okay. Hello, friends. Um, We just kicked it back. Thank you, Gary, on the 16th. Um, We're going to kick it over to Dottie. Um, Dottie, what are your thoughts on this kid, Jordan Spieth, going into next year? Wow. Jordan Spieth. Uh, My... First nugget would be what slump. Everybody talked slump after last year because they didn't win a golf tournament. So what? And I would also say nugget. Do you know he got a new puppy at a charity function and it's at Silo Ridge. So what's the puppy's name? Silo. Wow. New puppy. Okay. That's great, Dottie. Um, Kicking it back from Peter um, on the course. Dottie, what do you think about Rory? 
Uh, which Rory's going to the one that hits it in somewhere in between every once in a while, or the guy that wins major championships by by handfuls of strokes? Who the heck knows? I'm anxious to see if he's actually just going to play more golf this year. I mean, it looked like he disappeared for a while last year and just took a pretty significant break. I would I think the guy needs to play to really start to build momentum. Fair enough. Okay, thank you, Amanda. Thank you for those stats and that great interview. Dottie, we're kicking it back to you. What about Ricky? Is this going to be the year to win a major? Man, uh, I hope so. I'm tired of talking about it. I know you guys probably are as well. Uh, interesting thing that I broke the story last year about his oblique. Um, Butch Harmon is a very good friend. I've worked with the Harmons for years. And I was very curious when he went really low. Uh, Thursday at the at the PGA Championship, I said, "Butch, what is it? What what triggered it?" And gave up the goods that he was actually taped. The oblique was a major problem, and what happened when they taped it? All of his bad habits went away. He didn't overswing, and played some very very good golf. And of course, it caught up to him with with the whole FedEx Cup and missed the first couple of events, but. Uh, I think this is going to be the year that Ricky breaks through. Okay, 2019. Heard it here first from the one and only Dottie Pepper. Only a couple more here. Ian Baker Finch on the 17th. Thank you for that. That was a great shot there. Dottie, we're kicking it back to you to talk about DJ. Wow. Few people probably would know that, unless you've been on the range with him, that better than half of his range time is spent hitting wedges. Wedges with a track man, uh, hits very few drivers and focuses only on wedges, half wedges, little shots with the track man knowing not spin rates, none of that, but just exactly how far the ball goes. So it's sort of old school, but power golf. And if people would go to the range and watch him, I think they could learn an awful lot just about his preparation with the track man. Old school with new school with the track man. Interesting. Okay. And finally, Dottie, we can't finish the tidbit segment without talking about the one and only Tiger Woods. So do we get to 15 this year? Is that your next question? <laughs> I, I believe that's what we call teeing it up for you. I, I think so. Yes. <laughs> Put it right on that silver platter. <laughs> yeah. uh, a year ago, I would have said no chance. Uh, now I say I, um, I, you're saying there's a chance. I, I think there is a chance. I think I believe it will happen toward the beginning of the year. Yes, I'm saying the Masters. Mm. Uh, fresher, less wear and tear on his body after a healthy uh, training offseason. If he puts decent, drives the ball, golf ball decent, I think he can win at Augusta. Okay. I mean, you did great. I'll tell you that first. How do you think I did as, as Jim Nance? Don't feel quit, familiar? Don't quit your day job. Okay. Okay. <laughs> That's good to know. <laughs> yes. You have to be a little more syrupy. Oh yeah. See, it's early in the morning here in LA. So yeah. <laughs> I needed, I needed that New York time zone. Okay. Got it. So going from putting you on the spot, I'm going to talk about something that I hear you love doing and that's gardening. Okay. You wouldn't think that a golf podcast would talk about gardening, yeah. but you know, I'd like to bring up our guests passions and kind of to build on that. Um, we had Keith Mitchell on a year ago. And bar none, this is one of the most popular segments that we did. We we called it Grass Talk, where Keith basically took okay. us through all of the major types of grass and yeah. what that means for the player, what you need to look out for as an amateur. So you don't it. have to go through every one, but based on your obviously very successful playing career um, as a commentator and now gardening, 
I thought it'd be nice to give our listeners a refresher on things like, you know, poana greens versus Bermuda. Kukuya is really sticky, so it's hard to bump and run. Things that we can take away um, to improve our game. So here's the deal. Um, I'm a freak about my own yard. And we even, I've been known to, if things are looking a little thicker, I've got a patch over here that's not as good as it could be. Let's get rid of it and start over. So I've got a mix of Kentucky blue and rye in my yard. And it gets, um, it gets aerified at least once a year and overseeded. And if you got a couple hours this afternoon, I'm getting ready to finish this yard, <laughs> including <laughs> perennial beds and, <laughs> and taking canna lilies out and drying them and putting them in, uh, in moss for the winter and back in, in the spring. So yeah, I'm kind of a freak about that. I had, uh, I had a garden as a kid, a flower garden that was all annuals. And my grandfather had a vegetable garden that fed eight or 10 families and a root cellar and he canned and he pickled and he did everything. And he had this sauerkraut container that smelled so bad, but it tasted so good. So that's sort of where, where it all, all came from. But yes, um, I grew up, you know, upstate New York. So a lot of, a lot of um, bent grass, some fescue, which I actually prefer as, as a playing surface because it can get hard fast and it doesn't require a lot of, a lot of super maintenance. Um, but a few golf courses around here had the blend that we called Heinz 57. It was a little of everything. Hmm. And, um, it was a very rude awakening going to school in the South and suddenly playing on very common Bermuda at Furman university before they changed over the green in the, uh, mid eighties. It was, I remember hitting my first putt at a practice round. It was uphill and into the grain on the first hole. I, I didn't get halfway there. It was a 12, 15 foot that did not get halfway there. And, uh, I thought, well, wow, I've got quite the learning curve to, to go over. Cause I'd only played one event a year on, on anything other really than bent grass or that high 57 up in the Northeast when I'd go down to the PGA national, uh, junior and, and play there. So, and it was, it was cut pretty low and it was, the middle of the summer in Florida and they rolled them and everything was perfect. And then I went to college and thought, holy smokes, um, this is going to be quite the curve. But yeah, we've just gone through a restoration, renovation, kind of a re rebirth of our <clears throat> Victorian era golf course here in Saratoga. And, and Kai Golby did most of the work and they actually went around golf courses in the area and grabbed seeds this fall, fescue seeds to put on, on the mounds. It is going to be fantastic. And um, watching them reshape bunkers, there's a little bit of myopia in there, a little national golf links. There's, there's just a little bit of Garden City, I think, too. Of course, that's men's club, not been there. My husband has. But it's going to be really cool, and it's been fun to watch all of this, uh, literally from Labor Day till now. Yeah, it's just funny to hear the pros talk about the intricacies of grass. And, you know, as an amateur, it's like, well we're not even that good to think about that stuff, but it is interesting to, it gives you an out. If you play in California and you say you don't make a lot of putts, well, you put on Poana green. So maybe that's it, you know? Well, yeah. And a lot of water in the turf, they are miserable to putt on. They are absolutely miserable, but it also, the other side of it is that you can hit a really crappy putt <laughs> and it might go in. Right. <laughs> it doesn't necessarily always work to the negative. Right. I wanted to see if you agreed that the on-course reporter has the best job in golf broadcasting. You're outside, 
you're getting exercise, you're inside the ropes, you're talking to the players, you're interviewing the players, and actually seeing the action. Would you agree? Yeah, I do. Uh, partly because I'm, as David Faraday says, an outdoor dog. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, I I like to do a little bit of both work because I th- it's a different preparation, but I have a really hard time sitting still. So being out on my feet walking the golf course and actually getting a sense of feeling the competition is right where I love to be. And I'll have to give you another a Tommy Roy example. Um, during the 2008 Ryder Cup at Valhalla, I was scheduled to be in Bob Murphy's tower uh, morning session and then walk in the afternoon. I was kind of bummed about it, but I, you know, I didn't say anything. It's my assignment. I was back during the opening ceremonies prepping for the whole day. And phone rings and it's Tommy. And he said, Dot, do you really want to be in Murph's tower tomorrow? And I said, honest with you, no, I would rather be on the ground and walking. I'd rather walk 36 holes than sit in a tower all day long. He said, good, because I've got you out with a second match. (laughs) I decided in that tower, you get all this latent buildup of energy. And I think Murph's first hole was probably going to be like the fourth hole. So you're going to sit there for almost an hour and not call a shot. And I would have been crawling out of my skin. Right. So it was really cool. So I went down with the first match, stood on the first tee, kind of soaked it all in. And it was really cool. I mean, granted you're dead by Monday, double session, Friday, double session, Saturday singles on Sunday, and usually fall back and cover three or four matches in that situation. Cause they front load all the reporters walkers. Um, and then you fall back to the other matches. So, dead dog tired but but the adrenaline rush in a situation like that is um way better on the ground than it is in a tower oh i'm sure and then i was curious as a viewer can you walk our listeners through how you actually get your information like does the caddy tell you the club they're using do you simply just glance and see what they're using before the shot maybe an insight into that there's a little bit of both okay. uh, part of it is you, you sort of after a few years and walking with the same guys you kind of, when you get a number, so I have a guy walking with me that, that is ahead getting yardages. We've got this great little system where he hands me a sticky note. He calls in the number to the graphics truck. So they know who's away, uh, what the number is that you all see on the screen. If they get a club early, especially on a par three, that'll be up on the graphic as well. It's sort of a symphony of how things happen in time and everything sort of just moves along. And all of a sudden you'll get a caddy that won't give you a number. <laughs> You're like, well, okay. <laughs> and that's when you, you, you gracefully say, I think this is a seven iron. <laughs> mm, I see. Or my gut tells me this could be a hard eight or something, something like that. But uh, some caddies are better at giving you information than others. Some of them just get so into the heated conversation with a decision with a player, that there's no time to get that number to you. Hmm. We, we've definitely made some mistakes. We made one, uh, a really good one at Honda this year on Saturday. I got the signal that it was an eight iron. I saw three fingers down. Turns out that that was a mistake. It was supposed to be three fingers up. So I'm thinking it's a layup out of the bunker for Tiger. And it's actually a three iron that he put in the middle of the green. Oops. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it happens. <laughs> right. So, yeah. So that's when you're you know, you, you kind of have a chat amongst everybody who's getting signals and let's, let's just double check and not be in such a big hurry to, to uh, get information out. Let's make sure it's the right information. So it happens, but, but all in all, uh, it's a coordinated effort between my spotter, the truck, the player, 
the caddy. Pretty amazing that any show actually gets on the air every weekend. And I say that no matter where I've worked. I mean, there's so many moving parts to a show that it, it's really magical. Even you know, I've done this now for almost 15 years to actually be in a truck, television truck, to see a show come live on the air. It, it's it's still to me, I, I think, one of the coolest things you could ever experience. Well, it's funny you say that because we had Brandel Chambly and Shane Bacon and a few others on the show. And both of them have brought up the fact that the game of golf, obviously to the viewer at home, is so slow. Right, but the production right. side is actually crazy oh. fast paced. Do you have any other examples you can share? I mean, I think the one you just gave is is definitely one of them that could shed light on how fast things change for you, things you've maybe had to adapt to, and and just life behind the scenes. Well, I would I would couch it all by saying I believe it's the hardest work there is to cover on um, live. It's even harder when it's on tape because now you're you're fit, you have to fit the show into a prescribed amount of time and you have X number of commercial breaks and you have so many promos and all this other stuff that has to be fit into the puzzle in the proper order. But I think the important thing to remember about golf on television is that for 99.9% of all other sports, and I'm going to put horse racing off, off to the side, there's only one ball. So when there's a timeout, nothing is happening. There might be a, a review of tape, but there's nothing happening on the field that's live. If you have a golf tournament, you have morning wave, you have afternoon wave. There are golf balls in the air at all times, and it's your job to show the ones that matter. Are you kidding me? <laughs> it's hard, and there are no timeouts. So the breaks, that two-and-a-half-minute break that you get in a football game or basketball game or the halftime, there's no halftime in golf. None. And all of it's still happening in the truck and in the tape room. The tape room is absolutely critical to getting – everything on tape that's happening in that break. And then you have to sort through in less than 30 seconds, what really matters to the story you're trying to tell. So that's, that's the chaos of, of golf. But I've gone out there. I've had two uh, group assignments, which is when I've literally been on my way out to a group because somebody made a double or somebody made an Eagle. And all of a sudden that group's not relevant anymore. And dot, you got to go over here. Or, nope, 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 go back there. Because they just responded after making double with another birdie, and now they're only one shot out of the lead. But it's that sort of of craziness that I think somewhat scarily becomes sort of routine. Mm -hmm. So that you just, so you're prepared, go back to preparation. You're prepared for everything. I prepare for five or six groups every day, even on Saturday and Sunday when it's been whittled down. Because you don't know who's going to play great. And we don't always have a full complement of cameras every week and if you got tiger out there running in the middle of the pack and making a move well you're going to send cameras with him right so you just you don't know who you're going to go with so you prepare for everything and i think that's that's interesting because as you know and everyone in golf knows the tv broadcast gets so much criticism right from the coverage gap to not sure. featuring enough players and i would just love to hear i think you spoke to some of it already but i'm curious to hear from the other side, how do you feel about it? And are there things that you're seeing being done that you think can can silence, not even silence some of the critics, but just mm. make what you think the product is a little bit better? First off, it's really, I'm kind of a geek about this because I was a sports management major. But to understand the budget of putting golf on the air, it is expensive. Because mm. it's you got 18 football fields yep. and they could all be in play at the same time. So they have to be covered. And what is that 
that's humans, that's resources, that's just bodies being in concert with each other and the equipment to make all of them be able to talk to each other at the same time. Putting golf on the air is extraordinarily expensive. Everything you see, like these camera towers that our guys are on, handheld camera, whether it's a, with, whether it's actual fixed camera, whether it's received camera, some down somewhere in the middle of a par five, everything that they're standing on has to have a certificate of occupancy from the county and sometimes the state in wow. order to just get them in position to do the job. So it's so much more detailed behind the scenes, I think, than people realize. And when they stop to think about that, they realize, wow, this is a much bigger thing. It's a really big deal to put on golf and it's expensive. So there are promos and there are ads because it's, like I said, it takes money to put this, this monster on television. And yeah, could we, could we be more concise? Yes. What did we do at CBS this year? We showed more shots per hour than we've ever shown before. And we, we started at the very beginning of the year logging the shots because there was criticism. And we did an incredibly great job of tightening up the shows, not as many promos. You don't hear the PDATour.com read graphics, so it doesn't take up space. You can actually show live golf over those graphics. Hmm. And I think what we did as a company this year was remarkable because it literally turned around in the course of the West Coast uh, events that we did. There was a definite pace difference, and I think the toes were sh- the shows were tighter, and there was more content. At the end of all of that dribble, it's really expensive and hard to put golf on television. And anybody who does it, I applaud them because it's not easy. And, and, and you have this traveling circus every week, and these trucks that you roll up, and people think, okay, that just happens. Well, <laughs> all that cable has to be taken down every week and put back in position for the next week and on goes the circus to the to the next uh, city and it seems seamless but it's not no i think that's really helpful context and i think all of our listeners will find that super interesting i think what else is helpful context is it's funny a lot of my generation probably knows you mostly from being an on-course reporter and a golf commentator right and they probably don't Mm -hmm. realize that you won 17 events on the LPGA Tour, two majors. You topped the money list in 92 and then finished in the top 10 of 11 seasons between 91 and 2001. So obviously, amazing career, future Hall of Famer for sure. So I wanted to know, well, first I wanted to read this story that that I found for the listeners and then I wanted to hear your thoughts. So I read the Golf Digest story about how you borrowed $5,000 from your grandfather mm-hmm to play in the 87 U.S. Women's Open. For context, that's probably around 11 grand today. I, you know, I went to Google and used a little calculator to provide that context. Good work. <laughs> Good work. Um, and you finished... the value of money. <laughs> <laughs> and you finished tied 12th and earned around 6,000. You walked back into the barn and handed him the cash and said, I needed to play I well did. and put up the numbers in order to stay alive. I had no sponsorships. So when you hear players complain, it bugs you a little bit, but you're proud to say you made it happen. You just learn to play hard. So first of all, like the idea of borrowing 10 grand to play in one tournament, granted it's the women's U.S. Women's Open, so it's understandable, is is still amazing. The fact that you paid them back right away, I think says a lot about your, your fierceness of a competitor and your character. But I'm curious, knowing the background and your playing career that I just went through, 
can you tell which players on tour enjoy that grind and which don't? Because I've always been curious if that's actually what separates the best players from the good ones, because they're all incredible talents. Uh, yes, I, I think that that is the determining factor between somebody who's going to go out there and play through a finish when it's all going well or somebody who's going to show up at the range on Tuesday or Wednesday or even Thursday of a tournament they ultimately win with a case of the shanks, which I did. Mm. My first tournament in Florida that I won, Oldsmobile Classic, I had to finish on Monday, play off, we ran out of daylight against Beth Daniel, and I literally had the shanks early in the week, and I went to the Q school with the case of the shanks. <laughs> Talk about ugly. I mean, nobody wanted to be standing around me. <laughs> it was bad. Um, but I, I think the, the backstory to the 5,000 was that when my grandmother on my dad's side, uh, when all of her six grandchildren were born, she put money into a CD account and it was for their college education. And she put a little money in at Christmas time and at birthday time. But when I got out of high school, I didn't need that to go to college, but I needed it for books and, and that sort of stuff. So I took the interest every year and I was born in August. So I could take money out in August and be, be just fine to get through school year and not touch the principle of that CD. Great. Well, when you turn pro in June, there's about two months that I needed that money that was now sitting there for 20 years and I couldn't touch it. So I went to my grandfather and asked him for five grand because I had to A, play in the women's open that I had to qualify for. Actually, I gave up my exemption from the Curtis Cup team in 86 to qualify in 87 as a professional. And I had to pay the thousand dollars it was to go to the Q school starting in August. So I, I just needed a bridge. And that $5,000 that I borrowed from him and paid him back just a few weeks later um, got me through until I could get that money out of the bank and go to the Q school. The ruder awakening, I will tell you, is that I had enough money, if I was really smart about it, to make it through half of my rookie year. It was going to cost about 60 grand to stay on the road somewhat comfortably for the whole year. It was either I had to play or I was going to have to figure it out. And playing hard to me was a lot easier than figuring it out. So got through the beginning of March and I, and I, I played okay. I, I, I was definitely ahead of the curve as far as making money and staying with my head above water. But I finished second in Phoenix and Ohiku made a birdie at the last hole, became the first Korean winner on the LPGA tour. But I got myself into the dinosaur the next week and top 10 it there. And I was good for the rest of the year. And that was to me, that was, it was security, but it was also um, a lesson to never give up. And sometimes it's better to have a little less for it, a little more. And that was definitely me. Knowing that you, and I read this on the internet, so I, I think it's accurate, but the fact that you only missed three cuts in your entire professional career. Do you have one or two things from your playing days, but also that being around the best players in the world now that you've noticed mental approach routines mm. that you think the average golfer can emulate? The players that I love to follow are the ones to me that every shot really matters. Mm. And it's not to the point that they're beating themselves up without cause. But you can tell they're out there with a purpose and they've, they've gone out there and they treat being a professional golfer as it is their job and it is their brand. And it's, it's everything that 
you dreamed it would be, but it's still a job. And those are the players that I love going out and covering. And the guys like Jordan speak, what you would never, ever, he's going to berate himself and get over it. And he loves everything about what being a TGA tour professional is. And Justin Thomas, same thing. He's going to grind it out every time and be prepared to play. And if he's not, he's going to figure out how to, how to get out there and get better the next week. And there are other guys that you just, well, okay, I missed the cut. I'll go on next week. And I think there's a fine line between letting yourself live that way and tanking it for the very first time and setting a really bad marble rolling down the staircase. We've asked most of the tour pros that have come on the show this question, and I'm curious to hear your answer. I've seen this even as you know a single-digit handicap that it's easy to go week to week and say, oh, man, my my short irons are really struggling. I really need to work on my short irons. Then the mm-hmm. next week, my driver is really bad. I need to figure that out. And a lot of times what I do personally is I will – I'll try and reinvent things and I'll try and find one thought that I can lean into when I'm playing the next time. And I've thought about as Mm -hmm. a pro that could drive you crazy to continually try and find tweaks. Um, when your body's always feeling different, it's changing every week. How do you balance sticking with what you're doing and not over changing things when the results might not necessarily be there? I think you're, you're onto something really big that you, you've, carry over one thing because if you're trying to put a lot of band-aids on things i think that that's really harmful and that that starts making you question every bit about about what you're doing and why you're doing it and then the emotions of being out there when all this chaos starts to take over i always thought and and i've actually talked to davis love's son drew about this if you get something that you really that's always your foundation that you always go back to i still have a file folder of notes that i wrote to myself (laughs) and um, notebooks. So, that you, so, or if you, so he works with Rotella. I said, so what do you do after you finish talking with Bob? Well, I go try to put it into use. I said, no, what do you do with that information? He said, well, it's in my head. I said, no, put it down in a notebook. Put it down so you have it because that becomes your reference for going forward because those same things are going to creep up. They may have a different costume on, but it's the same thing creeping up time and time and time again. Okay, so I knew what happened when, when I was in contention. My hands got cold and clammy, and I could feel my carotid artery feel like it was going to come out of my neck. All right, cool. That happens every time. Now I deal with it. But I wrote it down. I recognize that this isn't a foreign body that's living inside of me. It's called competition and the chance to win. And when I was working with Craig Harmon, I had my notebook. When I worked with Ted Ossoff, who I worked with for most of my, my professional career, I had the notes that he would drop in the mail to me or that, that I had um, taken after we had a session. I still have the notebook from my original PGA professional, and it's probably got 90 letters in it because after every lesson he gave me, he hand-typed on a manual typewriter everything we, we worked on things that I needed to be thinking about going forward. And he inevitably, almost every time, left a book in my parents' mailbox. You should read this book or read this certain section of it. Everything from golf architecture in America to Sam Snead to Gene Sarazen 
to, there was a laundry list of things that he had me read, none of which had anything to do with the mechanics of the golf swing. But it was about maintaining the feel. It was stories about Sam Snead growing up in the mountains of, of West Virginia and everything that went on to these great players being able to play so well for so long, hoping I would glean just a little teeny tiny bit out of it. And then I got the highlighter out and I wrote him in my notebook. Write it down. <laughs> write it down. The old lesson. Write it. I mean, and, and now you even don't need to write it. You're, you're on your phone all day long. Just right. put it in the notes section of your iPhone. I've, I've done it actually. Right there. I've actually done the same thing. So it's great to hear that I'm onto something. Although I'd still kind of want yeah. a few pages out of your notebook. So we might have to talk about that <laughs> off the air. But it sounds like a treasure trove um, <laughs> of secrets. But um, yeah. I wanted to ask you, going back to... Um, life as an on-course reporter for a second. Um, we're probably going to jump around a bit. What was it like to quote, I'm going to put it in quotes because I'm sure you'll say that you can never replace this guy, but what was it like to quote, replace a guy like David Faraday? You're, you're exactly right. You can't replace David Faraday. Um, and it's sort of like what Zinger's getting ready now to do, taking over and sitting in Johnny's seat. You can't replace them. You can only, can only be yourself. And the cool thing about all of this was that Faraday and I have become good pals and I hear from him and vice versa. And I told the guys when, when I went into, I guess you could call it an interview with, with CBS at the end of 2015, it was in September. I told them, I, I said, look, I'm not naturally funny the way Faraday is, but I will outwork anybody. And that's sort of been my hallmark where, wherever I went. I mean, I'll, I'll get you with a zinger now and again, um, but I'm just going to outwork you and be prepared for, for any place you throw me. And that's just kind of the way I, I prepared as a player and I've, and I've prepared as a, as a walkie announcer or even power announcer, different, te- different preparation pattern, but um, still the same thing. Be prepared for anything to happen. And another thing, Tommy Roy, Talk about things that like leave marks in your head. His whole thing about being a tower announcer was yes, to be prepared for anything to happen and that anything to happen is for the president to be shot and get the show to New York. Fine. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that was always the, the mantra to be prepared for anything, including the president being shot, get the show to New York and the rest of it. We'll just figure out if you're prepared. You can handle anything. Well, it's funny you bring that up because that's a perfect segue into my next question, which was walking us through your week at an event, right? Mm-hmm. So what is the what is the actual preparation Monday to Wednesday versus Thursday to Sunday? Is it more important to get your time on the course? I'm sure mm-hmm. it depends on whether or not you're familiar with the course or not versus are you talking with players? Like what is that? What's your week look like? So my, my typical week, if I'm if I'm in the midst of what we do at CBS. So I work five full weeks each year and full week. I would, I say by doing cable Thursday, Friday, and then network Saturday, Sunday. So the, the bulk of my year is spent just working Saturday, Sunday on the ground. And every once in a while, I'll be in the tower as I was last year in San Antonio on the weekend when McCord's not there or we, not, not everybody works every week as you, you might, might gather. Right. I'm usually getting home on Monday. Sometimes I can drag it into the late flight on Sunday night, but home on Monday, uh, sort of get reacclimated at home, 
Tuesday starts the inflow of information. I have two people that used to be at NBC. They're, they're now retired and they live in Bradenton, Florida, and they start clipping for me everything that's coming out of PGA tour. That's relevant statistics. So I have two emails, just about two emails a day, starting Tuesday, Wednesday, and starting into Thursday morning. So I have all of the information I'm looking for in one place. So I can start going through and figuring out what's relevant and what's not. And when the pairings come out, then you really start, you just, you start clicking into the information that you need and the groups that you know you're going to follow. But I watch every show on Thursday. I watch every show on Friday, whether I'm on it or not. Sometimes I watch the re-air trying to catch up with little tidbits I may not have caught up if the phone had rung or whatever. Thursday, Friday during the live show. I'm still a live TV junkie. And then I go back through that whole process again on Saturday and start whittling it down to the groups that I think I may be following. So it's key stats that the players um, have developed through the year, developed that week, reading the stories. Um, I am really maniacal about getting on ASAPsport.com and any other website that takes all of those interviews and puts them in one place. Interviews tell you some really great things about the players and it lets you ask questions when you get to the range. Can you follow up on this sort of thought that came out of it or just listen on the range? I really hate interrupting the players. I would rather sit back there and watch shot patterns develop, watch practice patterns develop, listen to the caddies talking uh, because I didn't love being interviewed or interrupted as a player. So I don't do the same. I don't do that to the players that I watch. I would much rather just sit on the back wall of a driving range and watch the players on the range because I, as a player, you know what's going through their mind. And if you happen to get a chance to talk to them or they reach out to you, then great. But I try not to get in their way. So talk to us about Jim Nance because we've had the chance to meet him. And I've told people that he's been one of the most gracious, considerate people I've ever had the chance mm-hmm. to meet. And I just mm-hmm. wanted to hear your take on what it's like working along Jim every week and giving folks some context on how much of a pro and how amazing of a person, at least he seemed to me when I met him. He is 200% genuine and 200% professional. I think he has, I, I'm pretty sure there's a photographic memory there. If not, it's darn close. I have a darn close and I think he gets me on a couple of little little nuggets here and there. Because my photographic memory doesn't have to be just golf. It has to be football and basketball and the general sports scene. On top of all of that, mm. um, he is a, he's a crazy reader, loves to read, and manages to, I think, juggle more balls in the air between family, travel, business, charity, being on the air than anybody I've ever seen. It's it's pretty miraculous, and and I think I I don't know that I could do it just because I'm also a sleeper. I need my <laughs> hours of sleep, and I'm pretty sure he doesn't. <laughs> I he's he's a pretty pretty amazing guy, um, and to think that he's got a he's got a very young family and back and forth to Pebble, and they now have a, more of a setup for the East Coast because of where his, his wife's family summer's a little better with the kids and and. They're, they're travel a lot with him. So he is on the go all the time, but 200% genuine. Yeah, and it seems like Jim's been doing it forever, and someone that's joined the team recently is Amanda, 
Balionis, who's obviously doing you know the new stats segments and and taking players through shots and the interviews post round. I was just curious, woman to woman, if you gave her any advice or if you've mentored her um, since she's joined the CBS team. I, w- I would say the only the only thing that was, I mean, she came in with her with her own plan of how she was going to do this. I mean, she's herself on the air. Um, the the thing I would say that has helped us, and that's another one of the things that we have gotten a lot better at, is that Peter taken off the golf course to go do the smart cart. So, I mean, there were instances where, so for example, the first year Saint, at um, San Antonio, I got pulled off the golf course at eight with the lead group, and I didn't get back in position until 11 because we had a smart cart section, a segment that was sponsored. And we didn't have an Amanda that was able to do that. Hmm. So I, I think that's something we have gotten a lot better at. Um, she's also built up a rapport with the players and there's a comfortableness about how they interact with her. She's not going to harpoon them. She might ask them the tough question when she has to, but she's not going to throw them under the bus. And, and, and I think as people have gotten more stats driven, that's been, been a really uh, important part of, how we've just gotten better. You know, she's, she's also on the road a lot too. And it's not just golf. I mean, she's, she's um, working at her craft covering college football now. And she's hosted some shows as sort of the on-air personality with analysts. So, so I I think she's, she's branching out and doing, doing well. Yeah, no, I've, I've, as a viewer, it's been great. It's, um, we've followed her for a while, so it's great to see her getting acclimated and adding that other element. Um, I wanted to hear from you. NBC obviously did the tour championship this year. So I was curious for you as a fan, where were you when Tiger won again? Um, not sure if you were watching at home or you were traveling. Um, but what is it like? What was it like watching him win versus watching the comeback firsthand all year long. I was on my couch at home <laughs> watching, uh, <laughs> as I do most Saturday, Sunday afternoons when right. it's not on CBS, I'm watching golf because I think it's part of my job to be up on, on what's happening. I watched Cameron champ win this past Sunday. <laughs> I made sure I watched the last couple of hours and, and I watched on, on Saturday. I think it's just part of being prepared for, for the wraparound season. Cause we're now in that season. Right. Um, I started the season as someone who was maybe a little skeptical about how Tiger's body would hold up and the changes that he was going to have to make to swing after what had been surgically repaired again and again and again and again. What told me that he was really all in about this was the first week we had him in San Diego when he literally could not find a fairway and got it around maybe a little bit under par, right around par for the weekend with really juicy rough, pretty small greens for the, for the most part at Torrey Pines. And he could not hit the broad side of a barn, <laughs> but he, he grounded out. And he told me in an interview that it was nothing more than ugly, but he pushed himself to learn how to score and to score well. And that with the exception of missing the cut in LA which I believe was his next start. There were big steps taken every week to get him to what happened at the open championship. I was on my couch watching that too. And, <laughs> and I got a little tingle up the back of my neck 
when he tied for the lead over there on Sunday afternoon. It was like, holy smokes. Yeah. But but he blinked. And he, and he blinked a couple of other times through the year. But I had him all 36 holes at the PGA Championship on, on the weekend. Mm-hmm. And, again, Saturday was good. And he was in there, and you could tell there's, there's a difference in the way he looks and how he walks. And there's just – it's when you know he started to click, click, click into – I'm really doing this and get out of my way. And Sunday there, the last couple of putts he made when he got the ball up and in at 17 after driving it in the hazard for a five to stay alive and the birdie putt he made at 18, ridiculous. But it was all set by him getting the ball up and in at eight and then he made the birdie from left of the world at nine. So to me, that was the noise I experienced when I first came on tour as a walking reporter for NBC because Tiger was at his height. It was 2004, 2005. I worked my first PGA tour event um, for NBC and it was wild. I had him at the U S open, my first, first U S open. And it was that sort of noise, that sort of focus, that sort of attention that was back again. And you know, you, you saw it throughout the year. It was getting closer and getting closer and getting closer. It was also getting sharper. And that that was what was cool to have a front row seat to all summer. Yeah, it was funny. We had Jason Sobel on at the beginning of the summer, and we we said that it could be the best season in history. And I don't think we had the, you know, not every major winner was necessarily a top guy or, you know, a fan favorite. But when you consider the way it finished, mm. I mean, it was oh. it was definitely probably one of the most memorable seasons that we'll have in our lifetime. I, I think so. And I granted it's on our air, but man, I can't wait for the masters. <laughs> it's <laughs> going to be so cool. Oh, for I sure. <laughs> for sure. Um, do you have a most memorable or favorite moment inside the ropes? I'm going to assume it wasn't the 08 us senior open when you got attacked by a big black bear, but curious <laughs> if you had a favorite Close moment. Ones. <laughs> Close ones don't count. <laughs> Uh, it's funny you mentioned that because that photo is in my office and it's also in Bernard Langer's office (laughs) (laughs) because he was the player that was closest to the bear other than me. (laughs) Uh, Favorite moment. Um, I don't know. My, the, all the, the Ryder cups were very, very, very cool uh, to be as somebody who, who just loved the Solheim cup so much that to be able to translate that into being on the ground, uh, that a Ryder Cup was was pretty incredible, and and I would really like to think that I haven't had my favorite moment yet. I really, I, I just I, I've, I've had a front seat to some pretty pretty great stuff, um, but I would really like to think that the best one hasn't happened yet. Yeah, maybe it's fifteen. Maybe that'll be it. Maybe. Um, maybe. So you, <laughs> you, you brought up Solheim Cup, so I do want to cover that. You have a crazy good record. Mm-hmm. I think you're thirteen five and two and five and one in singles in six competitions. We read that you annoyed opponents so much that Europe once put your face on a punching bag in the team room. So first, I want to know what the hell did you do to annoy them? And secondly, because of your record, what is wrong? Do you what what can we learn from you that is wrong with the U.S. Ryder Cup team? What did I do? Uh, I made a lot of putts. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it, it was uh, it was 98 at Muirfield Village. It was the second time Judy Rankin had captain the american side and i played some crazy great golf that week i had i had two uh, exceptional partners 
first was was Julie Inkster. Um, and I'll tell you a funny story about that. That um, first hole, you know, it's good par four at Muirfield Village. Fairway kind of cants to the left, and ideally, you kind of just get it out there somewhere, sort of the sort of the bunkers, left hand half of the fairway would be great. Holes cut back left, and I'm playing odds, so I hit the first tee shot, and we're playing Tris Johnson and Laura Davies in the leadoff match. I put the ball right center of the fairway. And Inkster has the audacity to say to me, walking down the fairway, next time, will you please take the head cover off? What? <laughs> so she hits four iron into the middle of the green. The Euros are kind of, they've missed the green long right, chip it down there, I don't know, 15, 20 feet. And she says to me as I'm standing over this downhill right to left putt, she says, whatever you do, don't leave me a four-footer. Oh, okay. <laughs> so I knocked it six feet by. <laughs> <laughs> she made the putt. We go one up. We win the match at the 17th hole. <laughs> but wow. Can you take the head cover off? <laughs> really? <laughs> <laughs> so it was that sort of, but, but we, we played really well. And I guess my tenacity just had a way of getting under the Euro skin. So uh, yes, Annika Sorenstam took a swing at, uh, you know, those, those blow up things that are weighted in the bottom so you can hit you can yeah. kids whack at them and then they, and they won't fall over so the euros had put these silly things out on the range as targets <laughs> to hit for wedge practice and then they brought them into the locker room so Annika apparently put my face on on one of these things and my whole thing was well I bet it was like a weeble it wobbled but it didn't fall down <laughs> that's amazing so that was that was the uh that was the genesis of that. But, at, you know, here's, I was asked to do this piece last week, and, and same thing. What do the Americans do to, to play better at the Ryder Cup? And I had, think it has nothing to do with the task force. I mean, it's great to get the input. Fantastic. Um, you got to figure out a way to play the golf course as it's presented, and you have to make putts. That's all there is to it. Um, you have got to figure out a way to get the ball in the hole, in the fairway, and in the hole. So if, if I had a criticism of what happened over in France? It was that the Americans went in there with one plan to play that golf course. And it was the way that they play every week on the PGA Tour. Bomb it as far as you can and somehow gouge it onto the green. Well, when the rough is old-style U.S. Open rough that's up over your ankles and it's wet and it's chilly, that's not going to work. So why not dial it back and just put the ball in the fairway? Because what happens when you do that? Chances are you're going to be the first one to play onto the green. Put stress onto your opponent. See if they'll break by not letting up and not giving them holes. Americans gave away so many holes. And, and that was always a big mantra of, of the best captains that I've ever played under. Um, was never give away a hole. Don't compound a mistake and don't ever give away a hole. And the Americans did that over and over and over again in Paris. Love that. So expand on the team stuff that we've we've been building on but do some more work from course management yeah. and, and strategy there absolutely i mean yeah. justin justin thomas went over there he knew what it was was looking like and he played in the tournament and yes they they grew up the rough even more and they they skinnied it up a little bit more but spend the time in the practice rounds is it a pain in the neck when there's a bunch of people out there and you're just trying to go out there and figure out how to hit tee shots and where to hit what of course it is. But is it worth it when you win on Sunday night? Of course it is. For sure. 
Yeah. Well, Dottie, thank you so much. I know we've already taken up more time than we thought. My last, my last question for you, and we ask this to every guest, is if you could pick our next must-have guest of people that you know and love, who is a must-have Ooh, guest? Can I ask you who you have had? Give me, give me six that you have had. Let's see. We've had... So in in tour pros, we've had um, yeah. Kevin Chappell, Colt No, Keith Mitchell, <laughs> Scott Langley. Colt oh Nose was amazing. Um, <laughs> yeah, we'll probably have him on again. He was he was the man. And then we've had, um, like I said, Brandel, Jason Sobel, Shane Bacon. Um, we're open. We want those personalities. And I'm not saying this just because he has a book out right now or it just came out, but he's probably my favorite person in all of television. Vern Longquist. Oh, I think he would be great for you guys. Okay. His stories, not just golf. I mean, certainly around CBS working golf, especially at the Masters and the PGA Championship, fabulous. But, you know, he was also the guy on the call with the Nancy Kerrigan and Tanya Harding at the Olympics. The guy has so many great stories, and he's such just a good human being. Okay. I could listen to him day after day after day and he's just fantastic all right so we're going to record a podcast with Vern just for you and you can play it in Thank the car <laughs> or in your headphones while you're gardening it'll be perfect done done okay. awesome well congrats again for the hall of fame and in, in new you. york golf hall of fame that's so exciting um and this was great this was one of our favorite interviews so thanks so much and if um we'll we'll hope to say hi to you we're in la so we go to riviera and sure. even Tory Pines every year. So um, we'll hope we'll try and say hi to you on the um, inside the ropes on um, during Riviera this year. Please do. But don't do it in my right ear because I can't hear anything out of <laughs> okay. there with that headset on. <laughs> Perfect. Good to know. All right. Thanks so much, okay. Dottie. <laughs> thanks. Take care. <laughs> See you.